So we're continuing our study in Ecclesiastes, and want to introduce the topic this way. So Abraham Lincoln, he's credited with saying, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. So I was, I was researching this quote, and there was some debate on whether or not it was actually Lincoln who said this, but regardless of who said it, it's insightful, is it not? And if I really want to test your character, if I really want to see who you are, then how about I give you power? How about I put you in charge? How about I make you the boss, let you call the shots, and we'll see what happens, what comes out of you when you're the one in control of things. Reflecting on power, a 20th century theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, wrote, Man is insecure, and he seeks to overcome his insecurity by a will to power. He pretends he is not limited. And so if we were to combine these two ideas, we could come up with our own little saying and say, give a man power and see just how insecure he really is. And so is it not true that oftentimes power is the thing that we chase after in order to cover a sense of lack that we feel? We've been talking about uh, different ways that we chase after joy, things we run after, whether it be work success or financial success or relationships or pleasure. The book of Ecclesiastes sort of holds out these different things that people chase after in order to find joy. And this morning, we're looking at power. And is it not true that power can be a thing that, hey, if I can get power, if I can get control, well, then I can fix what's broken with me. I can cover over the insecurity that I feel. I can cover over the mess that swirls around me and the circumstances that are around me. And maybe, just maybe, I'll find some joy. Maybe I'll find some peace. Maybe I'll find a sense of permanence in my soul that life doesn't seem to just be this fleeting thing where I'm on the earth for a while and then I die. But maybe if I have power, something lasting will take place and I'll feel that in my soul. And this is what Ecclesiastes confronts us with. God's word through the author, through the preacher, is that when we chase down power when we run at power as a means for joy, as a mean for, for fixing what is broken in us, as a way to find permanence and lasting meaning, well, what ends up happening is that power becomes dehumanizing. It becomes dehumanizing to those around us that we interact with, and it becomes de- dehumanizing to us ourselves. And so this morning, I want us to allow Scripture to deconstruct our hearts and confront our pursuit of power and how we relate to power in order to reshape us and to teach us how to use our power in life-giving ways, in ways that rehumanize us and those around us. So that's where we're going to head this morning in this passage from Ecclesiastes. So in talking about dehumanizing power, two, two categories for this. One, how power dehumanizes others. So the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, writes in verse 316 and 4.1 a lament over the broken use of power. This is what he writes. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And then in verse 4.1, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Have you ever sat in the wrong seat 
at a ball game or at a theater or on an airplane, and there's that moment where someone who belongs in that seat comes up and you feel that like shock of, uh, I don't belong here. Well, this, this is what the preacher is saying. In the seat where righteousness and justice should be sitting, there's wickedness. Wickedness is in the wrong seat. He doesn't belong in that seat. And this, this is an illusion. What, what the preacher specifically has in mind is there is an illusion to sort of judicial power political power, those who sit in a position of power where they can hand down judgments, they can affect laws, they can affect society in a just and righteous way, well, they're not acting justly and righteously. They're acting in wickedness. They're using their power for their own gain, for their own means, and it is having an effect on those around them. Those in places of power should use that position of power for the good of those around them and the preacher's lamenting, that's not what is happening. Wickedness is in the seat of righteousness and justice. And then in 4.1, he laments something very similar. Those who are oppressed have no one to rescue them. The oppressors had all of the power. Those that were doing the oppressing, they were in charge. They were in control. They could dictate what was happening. And those that needed to be rescued, those that were in places of destitution and maybe pain and maybe poverty, those that were weak and vulnerable, the ones that those in power should be running to rescue and help and use their resources and their authority to pull out of those circumstances, well, they're just impressing them more. And when the oppressors are in power, when the most powerful people in authority are the ones inflicting damage, well, who's going to comfort the oppressed? And so the preacher is lamenting that those that are in power, those in authority, are using it to wreck those around them. They're using it for their selfish means. They're using it to gain their own sense of status and security. They're using it to fulfill their own needs. And it's dehumanizing everyone around them. We get in these, these verses a picture of those who use their power and authority to dehumanize. And just think for a moment in our culture. I mean, there, there, there are so many interesting things happening in our culture right now, but is, has not sort of the, the veil been pulled back on oppression in our society and, and the many ways that people abuse and abuse power? I mean, I, I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. You have to admit that it's crazy town right now. That, that, that there are many who are using their place and position of power in ways to oppress and control. And, and it's good in, in many ways how the veil has been sort of pulled back and we see much of the, the institutional racism and sexism and classism that is happening. And we're seeing some things that are good, things that have been buried for a long time. But the question becomes, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Do you, do you weep and do you lament like the preacher here? Do you, does, it, does it stir in your soul something that, hey, something's deeply wrong, something's deeply broken? Or is it, ah, just a 24-hour news cycle? Tomorrow they'll be talking about something that Taylor Swift did. We, 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 we can just very quickly just sort of pass and bury the pain and oppression that is going around us. And, and to some degree it's our own fault because we're inundated with news and stories and we're on our social media and we're watching whatever cable news channel you like to watch. And so it's this bomb, constant bombardment and it's very easy for us to be numb. But here we have a strong reaction to oppression and wickedness and people abusing power. And if, if our, something in our heart is not stirred, if something, those of us who call on the name of Christ, if, if we don't feel something about that, 
then there's something wrong there. We're, we're missing what the gospel calls us to, to, to feel and to think. But here's, here's something that I'm, I'm afraid of. It's very easy. What we can also do is this. We can watch all of that going on in the media. We can watch all of that going on in Washington or in Lincoln or whatever, whatever other place of power. And we can easily go, well, that's not me. I'm not a corrupt congressman. I'm not a corrupt businessman. I'm not using my place of power to oppress and, and, and put people in economic positions where they're vulnerable and weak. I'm not a racist. And all the while miss how we use our power, whatever power we may have, in ways that dehumanize those around us. It is very easy for us when we start to grab power, when we start to use other people for a means for us to feel good, for my joy, for my control, for my sense of status, for my sense of, I I want the world around me to operate so that I am promoted, that I feel good, that I'm in a place of security. When, When we use those around us in our power so that they're about our joy, then we're doing the same thing. It's just a matter of scale, but it's the same sin, it's the same problem. Because whether you're just some dude who has a family or just some boss at a small company or just some guy in in the community or whether you're the president of the United States, it's the same root sin. All it is is just the scope of your ability to control and the people around you. And so we we shouldn't think and and look at the politicians and and those in in places of power and think, oh, they're so much worse off than I am. Those people are just horrible. Rather, we should look at what they do and think, is that same sin in my heart? How do I use my power? How do I use my position? How are those around me that I'm in relationship with or I'm responsible for, how am I using that power? Is it about me? Do they serve me and my joy? Or am I using that position of authority that God has given me for their good? And that I might uplift them, that I might comfort them, that those who are in weak and destitute places, I use my power to help them and care for them. And so I would ask, in our marriages, husbands, how are you using your power? The authority that God has given you to lead your family, how are you using it? Is it to see that your wife flourishes and thrives and is uplifted in the Lord? Are you using your power that your kids may walk in joy before the Lord, that they're loved and cared for? Yes, discipline them, but in a way that they're being built up. Or is it all about managing your little kingdom? All about, hey, my family serves so that I feel good about myself and I can put on a good public face. And we could flip it too. Wives, are you trying to control your family in a way that it's to build up you and how good you feel, how you navigate your power over your kids or even the level of power you may have over your husbands. I mean, we we could go down the list. We can go into our jobs, those of you who are bosses. Are, Are you the kind of boss that likes to see your employees thrive and grow in their job, that they're successful and that they're flourishing? Or are you the kind of boss that is just going to control everything and everyone so that you look good and you feel good and that you don't have to deal with brokenness and mess. And so we, we, wherever the Lord has given you some semblance of power, it's good to ask these questions. How are you using it? How are, how are you treating those around you? Because here's what you do when, you, when it becomes about you. You dehumanize those people 
Because they're no longer those made in the image of God who you are called to love and serve and uplift, but they're things. They're objects. And you might not even recognize you're doing this. You might not go, you know, my wife is an object, or my husband's an object, or my kids are an object, or my employees are an object. We don't do that consciously, but that's what's happening. We're we're treating people as objects and things and not those made in the image of God. And so are we using our power to love and uplift or are we dehumanizing people? For the preacher, the situation was so bad that in in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he cries out, and I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Better never to have been born than to suffer at the hands of oppression. Better to be dead than have to suffer under those who may dehumanize you. And I wonder, any of you ever felt that way? Those of you who have experienced that pain of being dehumanized by those who use their power in sinful ways. Have you ever felt, you know, better, I would rather be dead right now than face this. It's probably better if I just had never been born, God. I mean, this is deep, deep pain. And those of you that have used your power in sinful ways, I don't want you to run away from this. This is the cry of those who have been hurt by the way you use power. This is the cry of those who have felt what it, what it is to be used as a thing for your good and your glory and diminished. And so I'm going to get to the forgiveness and the hope and the gospel, but I don't want you to move too far from this right now. You need to sit in this just for a moment because this is what happens in a person's soul when you use your power in a harmful and sinful way to begin to regret and lament that they're even alive. The gift of life that God has given to them, they're seeing it as a curse because of how you use them. It's painful. And so this is how we dehumanize others. But we also dehumanize ourselves. It's not just that we dehumanize others, but when we seek power as our source of joy and permanence, we end up dehumanizing ourselves as well. In chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, here's what the preacher writes. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breadth, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So the word for testing here literally means separating or revealing, that that there's a sense where God is allowing this stuff to happen to show something to man, to, to, to humble man before him. Man, man and woman, humankind, for all your specialness, for all of your ability and talent, for all of the control that God has given you, guess what? You're going to die. Guess what? You're no different than the beast that you have control over. You're going to die. Death is the great equalizer. For all your power, for all your control, for all your ability, you cannot stop death. You're just like a beast. You're going to return to dust, just like everything else. 
And so there's this, this very humbling sense that, that the preacher is putting right in front that, hey, I don't care if you're the most powerful man in the world, you're going to end up dust, just like the stray cat in the alley. And that, that, that's a humbling thing, that to be kind of confronted with that, that our humanity, our frailty, our finiteness, all of that kind of hits us in this very blunt and crass and harsh way, that this is the reality of the world we live in. And so that's, that's the first way that the preacher is sort of saying, hey, you're like a beast here, you're going to die, you're not any better, be humble. But there's another implication underneath this that's happening, is that in the context of using our power in ways that dehumanize others, we become in many ways like a beast, like an animal. And so think of it this way. There's a difference between human beings and how we relate to one another and how we function and animals. I mean, animals don't live in the same way, in same, the same relational way that we do. Now, some of y'all are thinking, you don't know about my dog. You, my dog, he knows me. You don't, you don't know about my cat. When my cat looks at me, he, he peers into my soul. I'm like, hey, he's plotting on you, bro, so just be careful. But I get it. Okay, so there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense where, yeah, we can, we can interact, and, and there's a, you know, with animals, I think that's, that's in, God has given that opportunity, cool. But, but you understand the difference, right? That, that animals live by a different set of rules. There's an instinct. They don't have a moral code that they walk around. Theirs is just survival. Like, kill or be killed. They're driven by two basic impulses, eat and reproduce. And if you've ever been around wild animals, you know they're insecure. Like the smallest sound, and they're skittish. They're running. They're fearful. They're, they're constantly trying to control their circumstances so they're not getting killed by whatever is out there. And so when, when we want to control, when we try to chase after power as a means to bring joy and meaning and purpose, we become that way. The great irony is, is that the more we grab at control to find security, the more insecure we become. The more we chase after power as a means to, to give us joy, the more bitter and harsh and cruel and shut down we become. And so we become like that skittish animal in the wild, afraid of every little circumstance. We, we become afraid that things are going to harm us. And we're reduced basically to, I need to provide for myself and create this sense of security and make sure everything's good. And when that's not going on, i got to go for some sort of pleasure in this world, otherwise life gets too hard. That's what the preacher says here. It's just better to live and enjoy the, the fruit of your toil. So you're basically reduced to minimizing insecurity and just trying to find whatever pleasure you can in life. And if that's the way you live, if that's the, the plane that you're existing on, you know, if you're honest, how that's crushing you. That's, that's creating this hardness in your soul. And that's what happens when we make power the thing we chase after. We, we dehumanize ourselves. We shrink our world. We harden and become brutal and cruel and we become like animals, losing our humanity, losing how God intended for us to live in relation to him in relation to others. And so I wonder sometimes if the author of Ecclesiastes had King Nebuchadnezzar in mind when he wrote these lines. It kind of depends on when you believe Ecclesiastes was written. But if you know the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon at the time, the greatest empire in the world. 
And he conquers Israel and brings a number of the, 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 the top students, the top young people in Israel to Babylon. And Daniel was one of them. And so Daniel is interacting with Nebuchadnezzar and is an eyewitness to these things. But Nebuchadnezzar was a king who loved his glory. He loved his power, built a ginormous statue of himself and made everybody bow down to it. He was a king that was all about, hey, you serve me. You're about me, my joy, my status, my power. But what ended up happening is Nebuchadnezzar started becoming very insecure. God started giving him dreams of that ginormous statue come crashing down. And so Nebuchadnezzar became very insecure about his power, very concerned about what was going to happen. And he has these dreams, and none of his experts, his philosophers and his astrologers and the religious leaders of Babylon can answer this dream. They have no idea what is going on. And so Daniel comes. And Daniel tells him, hey, these dreams you're having, that's a sign from the Lord. If you don't repent from your pride and your power, God is going to remove you from power. If you don't acknowledge that it is, the one, it is God who is ultimately in control and has given you this position, you're going to lose it. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He persists in his pride and his control. He persists in grabbing after power as a thing to give him the most joy. And in Daniel 4, verses 29 through 33, this is what we read. At the end of 12 months, Daniel warned that in a year you're going to lose your kingdom. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like the bird's claws. In a very vivid picture, God judges Nebuchadnezzar and says, you want to dehumanize others? You want to dehumanize yourself? Well, let me show you who you really are then. Boom, like a beast in the field. Now, if you know the story, Nebuchadnezzar repents and God restores his sanity and restores his position of power and it changes Nebuchadnezzar. But in that moment of judgment, Nebuchadnezzar saw what was really happening. And so I wonder if any of you feel this in your souls. What I just described about that hardening and that, that shrinking in and in your, into yourself and that insecurity that keeps growing and growing no matter how much power you grab or try to control your circumstances. I wonder if you feel that just becoming more brutal and more harsh and more angry and feeling more and more insecure. Now understand, for those of us who misuse power, as Ecclesiastes 3.17 says, God will judge. Like your pride, God will judge your pride if you persist in your pride, if you persist in your sinful, abusive use of power, God will judge that. And so that should humble you. But here's the good news of the gospel. You can be set free. You can be set free. Before we get there, I, I just want to make a note. I want to, and, and this, I, I say this with trying to thread a needle here pastorally. Um, for, for some of us, 
that have, have experienced abuse of power and sinful power and, and the scars and the pain that it has caused. What, what can end up happening is we can take that status of being the one who has been oppressed and we can turn that into a kind of power. We, we can take that status as I am a victim, I've been oppressed, I've been hurt, and we use it to, in, in order to find this moral high ground in order that we try to gain control over other people in our circumstances. Well, I'm the victim, I've been hurt, and so you can't do these things to me, or you can't say these things to me, or this allows me to do X, Y, Z. And, and we see a lot of that happening in our culture right now. To be a victim is sort of the highest moral standing you can get. And if I can assert my victimhood, then that can, give me, that can justify all kinds of behavior. Now, I do not in, for a second want to minimize your pain. Not for a second do I minimize what has happened to you. But understand, if, if you use your status as a victim and oppressed to gain power over others, you are becoming the very thing that oppressed you. And you are preventing yourself from experiencing real healing. Because healing is not found in just grabbing power over someone else. You're not going to find healing there because what you have to do is you have to maintain your status as a victim. And so you have to perpetuate that and perpetuate that and perpetuate that. And so that's all you become is a victim and an oppressed. That's how you gain power. So if you've been hurt and you felt that temptation to use your being oppressed and your victimization as a, as a means to control and gain power, let me call you to something greater, call you to something better, call you to something deeper. I'm going to call us all to the gospel because it is in the gospel that power is used to rehumanize. The good news of the gospel is that it renews and restores how power works. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, how power doesn't dehumanize, it rehumanizes. The gospel kills our pride. This is where we have to start. The gospel kills our pride. It says, I am a sinner deserving of the righteous justice and judgment of God because of how I have used my power, how I have sinned against others. But in God's mercy and in his love, he sent Jesus Christ to save me, to pay the penalty that I deserve for how I have used my power. It, it, the gospel confronts your pride saying, you aren't all that. You are going to die. You deserve death because of your sin, and it is coming. But God says, I love you. Come to me, no forgiveness, be set free from your pride through the death and resurrection of my son. And so the gospel kills our pride and sets us free. The gospel frees us from control. Look, the good news of the gospel is God is primary. God is in control. God is the sovereign and good and loving creator and father. It's something we can rest in when, when we can't control our circumstances. We know God has them. And so we don't have to. We can let go of control. We can do what God has called us to do and be faithful, but then we can let go of control and we can actually live in the freedom of dependence knowing I don't have to be in control. And that's where the gospel sets us free. The gospel gives your soul depth and meaning. It gives you an identity. I don't have to find my identity in my ability to control things. I don't have to find my identity in other people doing things to make me feel good about myself. I have a deeper and greater identity in Jesus Christ, child of God, loved, adopted, secure in Him. And so people can be a gift to me. People can be a, a source of joy and friendship and fellowship. 
not the thing that I build my identity around. And the gospel sets us free so that when I am in position of power, I can love people and serve them and uplift them. And the gospel is the only thing that offers true healing and restoration from when you've been victimized. Jesus took the shame. Jesus took the sin. Jesus took all of those scars and all of that brokenness on himself. We talked about this several months ago when we were going through the book of 1 Peter. That shame of one who has been victimized, as one who has been oppressed, Jesus took that on himself. You don't bear it anymore. He's cleansed you. He has healed you. And so it is when you go to Christ that you find true transformation and healing through the gospel. And so this is what the gospel does. It sets us free in order to use our power for the good of others and the glory of God. And we get a picture of this in Matthew 20 through 28. If you're probably familiar with this story, but it is a great picture of what the gospel does to us and how we use our power. And so this is Jesus walking with several of his disciples, and this is what happens. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And there's, there's humor in this story. I mean, James and John got their mom to go ask Jesus to give us thrones. I mean, they couldn't even do it themselves. Hey, hey, mom, hey mom, can you go ask Jesus to give us the seats of power? Okay, I'll go do that. And so, so there's, there's just a massive mama boy go, moment going on here. But, and, and, and this is what is interesting. Here are two disciples, two of Jesus' inner circle, and they want power. They want to be the best. They want to be on Jesus' left hand and right hand, closest to him. And he asks them, he goes, are you able to drink the cup? That's an allusion to suffering. Are you able to suffer? And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll suffer. And here you have James and John, two of of the disciples that would eventually transform the world as they went and preached the gospel, saying, hey, we'll dehumanize ourselves. We're willing to dehumanize others so that we can have power. We'll suffer for that status and that glory and that money and that ability to control other people and tell people what to do. But Jesus lovingly corrects them. This isn't what he's talking about. He's not talking about suffering and wrecking yourself and dehumanizing yourself and others. And it's right here Jesus reorients there and our understanding of how power is used in the kingdom. And so the, the other ten disciples hear what James and John tried to pull and they're upset. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. I like to think they were just upset because James and John asked first. (laughs) He's like, well, they're being honest. The rest of them are thinking, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I get my mom? (laughs) But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. You know how the rulers of the Gentiles dehumanize you and dehumanize themselves and their use of power. You know how they corruptly use their power. The disciples had been shaped by their culture's view of power and not the gospel's. And here's the bullet to the heart. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you, my disciples. You don't dehumanize others and you don't dehumanize yourself. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You want to be great? You want to use your power? Go serve. That's how, we, that's how you use your power. That's how the gospel transforms your use of power. Go serve. That power you've been given, that authority you've been given, that privilege you've been given, is so that you may go serve. And we see this in the life of Jesus. This reference, the Son of Man, if we go back to the book of Daniel, this comes from a vision Daniel had of this God figure coming from the heavens, this glorious figure as one like the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days. That figure that Daniel saw that brought terror and awe to him. Jesus said that figure, he didn't come to be served, but to serve, to lay down his life, to pay the penalty for sinners like you and me who abuse our power and use it in sinful ways. He showed us how to use, his, how to use power, and in using his power in a God-centered way, saves you and me. That's the beauty and the redemption of power that rehumanizes. To, to save us from our dehumanizing ourselves and others, Christ comes and sacrifices so that we can be fully human, living in relationship with God and one another. And so when we embrace the gospel, we embrace dependence. We, we say it's okay to be human. It's, it's awesome to be human and depend upon a God and a Savior who is in control and who transforms me, one who gives me an identity. And I don't have to grab at that. I don't have to run around and make myself more and more and more insecure. It rehumanizes us because it allows us to have relationships with one another that are deep and intimate and self-giving and self-sacrificing, not running around using one another as things. So the gospel rehumanizes us and teaches us how to use our power so that we can go into this world and love one another. We can go into this world and care about the injustice we see around us. We can go into this world and care that people are being dehumanized. And we go and we seek to bring redemption and healing and restoration. And so in conclusion, I, just, just something uh, to, to make a comment on our culture and kind of, kind of bring, this, bring this together here. As I, as I said earlier, in many ways, the, the, the way our culture has sort of peeled back some of the oppression that goes on has been good. Like we, we needed a reality check on, on a number of levels. But, but here's something that's happened that I, I think is off the mark. And you've probably heard, heard this statement, check your privilege, being thrown around. If you, you're kind of on social media, follow the news, check your privilege, it's, it's, it's something that it gets thrown out there a lot. Here's what frustrates me about that statement. When, when, when someone is told, check your privilege, what, what is that a statement of? Hey, your power, your position, you should feel guilty about that. Like, like in some ways, people need to be confronted with how they have abused power, but, but that statement is like, hey, you should feel guilty that you have power. You should feel guilty that you have privilege. You should feel guilty that you're an authority. And that guilt should cause you to shrink back and sort of just give away power and just sort of not, not exercise it and not care about it. Yeah, I feel bad. I, I, I'm, I have status, and so that's bad. What that is not is that is not the gospel. The gospel never calls you to operate out of guilt. And so rather than check your privilege, use your privilege. Use it as Jesus calls us in Matthew 20. Use it to serve. I don't want you guilty 
about your privilege. I want you to use your privilege and your power and your authority to serve and uplift and love one another. Like the gospel calls us to a much bigger vision than just sinful use or guilt-ridden walking away and being passive. And so church, don't check your privilege. Use your privilege. If God has given you power and authority and the lives that those he has called you to lead and to love for us that walk into this culture and into this world, may it be done out of a sense of who we are and dependence on God. And you know what's going to happen? If I use my privilege, if I use my power in a way that brings glory, glory to God and for the good of others, if I'm, if I'm not using it in a way where I'm trying to find joy and permanence and to fix what is broken, if I'm trusting in the gospel, you know what you're going to find when you use power in a gospel-centered way? Joy. Let's pray.